0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Chasing Excellence. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. My name is Patrick Cummings. We are into, we are slightly ton- tongue-in-cheek calling us season two of the show. Uh, and what we're gonna do in season two going forward at the end of every month, we are going to bring you one of two things. Either a conversation that Ben has had recently on another show, or we're gonna bring you an interview. This month, this time around, is the former. We have a conversation that Ben had recently with Matthew DeRoche, host of, co-host of the Oxidative Potential Podcast. Ben and Matthew, uh, they, I don't know, they geek out. <laughs> they geek out a little bit. Matthew DeRoche is uh, an exercise science nerd, uh, and I say that lovingly, I haven't met Matthew, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead on a limb and say that he's okay with that as a descriptor. They get into the CrossFit Games a lot. They get into what it takes to become a CrossFit Games athlete, to thrive in the sport, and what it will continue to take in the years ahead. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you to Matthew. Uh, again, his show is called the Oxidative Potential Podcast. We'll link to it in the show notes. Check it out. Here you go.
1: You came from kind of a unique background in triathlon um, and kind of moved into coaching CrossFit and and CrossFit, the CrossFit space, which is interesting because I think a lot of people kind of attack CrossFit from a lot of times from a different place, whether it's, you know, strength sports or, you know, just being in the gym, health and fitness type of thing. And then they kind of get sucked in through that realm, or maybe they're an athlete of some type of team sport. so. I found it interesting hearing that your background coming from triathlon. Um maybe we could start there and just try to, you know, illuminate folks as how that transition went.
2: Yeah. I I was doing triathlon shortly after college. I played rugby. Um, and I was a fairly high-level skier, but not on the competitive sense. And that was my athletic background. Played the regular sports in high school. And then, like I think a lot of people, you still have that competitive itch when you graduate. College, or as you would say, I would graduate university. Yeah. Uh, um, and it kind of just fell face first into triathlon because it gave a competitive outlet. And something that tugged at my heartstrings, which I was excited about, was this wow, three sports in one. That must mean that you are pushing the envelope of like being the fittest person <laughs> around. I, at, yeah. Very little did I realize that it's no, you're kind of. You're just, you're just outside the edge of being a specialist, you know, you, um, and then kind of sat in that sport for four years, five years, maybe, um, did a couple Ironmans, um, toyed with the idea of trying to qualify. I was never very good, but tried to came close to qualifying for Hawaii, um, once. And then as I was started, like making the decision of like, sh- is this something I really want to go for? that's mm. when I found CrossFit. And that's when it really pulled me in because it really spoke to what I was looking for was this breadth and depth of fitness and not being a specialist. And um, my, um, my competitive career up to that point was so unremarkable that it mm. was perfect for me because <laughs> I wasn't excellent at anything, but I could pick things up fairly quickly. And I was um, athletic and I was not strong but not weak i was not fast but not slow and that's kind of what our sport was when it first came about was just this um sort of the the decathlete of the track and field world where yeah you're gonna get smoked by the by the 400 meter runner but you're gonna smoke the 400 meter runner in the shot put
1: yeah
2: and so it it also spoke to the methodology of um you know, which is something that you like, it was the first time I'd seen exercise science actually brought to practice. Like there is really strong definitions for what it is we're chasing where everyone says, let's get fit. And no one really knows what that is. So people go off on their, um, their roads and travel a million miles an hour to this destination, which doesn't lead them ultimately to fitness. It leads them to a sub two hour marathon. It leads them to a thousand pound back squat. It leads them to being able to do six back handsprings in a row. It leads them to being able to do a, uh, a, a, a split, you know, Van Damme style with your feet on, um, uh, <laughs> up on chairs, <laughs> you know, feet on <laughs> trucks, even better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So people go in all in the pursuit of, I want to be fit yet. They go down this road that doesn't ultimately lead them to fitness and fitness. Is work capacity across broad time and modal domains. And if we know what that means, well, then it gives us a repertoire, a regiment to follow to that end. And that truly spoke to me. So, how cool would it be to be not a thousand pound back squatter, but be a 500 pound back squatter and have a five minute mile and be able to do 50 pull ups? Mm-hmm. That is a level of capacity that leads itself well to everyday life, aka health. So if health is nothing more than functionality across your age, now not only do we have a definition for fitness, a definition for health, but we now have a, a, a regimen and a protocol of how to chase that today, which is super exciting for me, both as a competitive athlete, which led me to being a coach, but also just as a regular guy that's trying to kick ass into his 90s. Hmm.
1: That, that, was, uh, that was interesting to hear like your perspective of coming into CrossFit because a lot of people kind of get just sucked into it because it's fun or their friends dragging them out of class and they're just kind of like I'm gonna keep doing they just find themselves oh I'm getting better at this thing um but when you're talking about specific qualities within CrossFit you know it does a lot of people kind of miss the point on on what CrossFit is trying to gain out of I think uh one thing specifically is if we were just to look at the gym the average gym goer most individuals have a base level of You know resistance training under their belt but most of them might be missing on the cardiovascular components right um building a lot of the the qualities that are going to be essential like in the mitochondria that are going to be essential for for long-term health and just overall fitness and then on the other side of that we see a lot of the endurance athletes um, that are slogging long hours um, but can't really back a lot of that up uh, with any type of strength qualities that might aid them and we know several areas of 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 long-term health and and crossfit does if done appropriately does really do a good job at kind of combining all of those things for an individual that elsewhere would not be gaining either sides of those capacities right um yeah so for you how did that journey start to change like where does this journey start to change of like, okay, I'm doing CrossFit. This is a really, really good modality um, for enhancing health, fitness, um, even as a competition outlet. How did that start to change? And I think that I, I want to start, you know, giving this to other people. I want to start uh, showing people the intrinsic qualities that are in CrossFit and, and showing them how they can be done well. Um, wh- how did that cycle start to shift for you? Well, the the first, uh, for to be completely honest,
2: the first thing that attracted me was, um, you know, getting out of triathlon into this was, I would look around at my fellow triathletes and they're like these skinny rails. They're bigger than the they're bigger than the runners Mm because they swim, um, but they're not the body type I was shooting for. So from a purely aesthetic standpoint,
0: Mm -hmm. I
2: was like, that's not really what I'm going for. And then. You look at any triathlete or endurance athlete in their fifties and sixties, and they look like they're in their sixties and seventies. Just like the, the oxidative wear and tear on them. Yeah. It looks like it speeds up the aging process. Like that's also not what I'm looking for with the, you know, the sunken eyes and the kyphosis and all the rest.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, similar to that, I wasn't very enamored with the world of power lifting or strong man or even Olympic lifting, you know, potentially with the the big guts and the belts. And, um, you know, so, and then bodybuilding was just seemed extreme to me and it didn't seem like it was something I wanted to do or, and I'd see the health benefits from that. So what is this kind of cross-sectional from a, from an aesthetic standpoint? And that's really what drew me in in the beginning was like, I want to look like these games athletes. That's that, that looks like what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. And then all of the community and then all of the competition and all of the methodology and the science kind of came after that. And what I started doing was before I even really started doing this full speed myself, I was a personal trainer at the time. And I just started, I was already doing CrossFit type workouts, you know, where it'd be mixed modal and for time, but I, I didn't have the, the It wasn't as buttoned up as what CrossFit had created in terms of the measurable, observable, and repeatable aspects of it, which is what science is. Mm -hmm. If you want to do science, it has to be measurable. You have to, so let's get a stopwatch, let's get a tape measure, and let's get a whiteboard that we can post our results to. Mm -hmm. That right there. And now we are, I know how far you're traveling, I know the weight you're moving, I know how long it took you to get there. We can measure your average power. That's really exciting. We're something that everybody in cycling or rowing has known forever, right? It's, we want to know what is your average power. You increase your average power. You're increasing your fitness. That was so foreign to anybody that was doing anything from a calisthenics or moving um, external loads with a barbell. It just didn't exist. We were just go, all right, here's your one rep max strength, or here's how many pull-ups you can do to failure, but no one did it with power as a consideration. When you now do, let's do 30 front squats with 135 pounds and 30 pull-ups. Let's do three rounds of that. We can measure in an observable, repeatable fashion, what type of power you're putting out. If you do that over time, now we're truly getting results of your work capacity. And work capacity is your fitness. That's what it is, as long as you do it across broad time and modal domain. So it's not just about your front squat pull-up combination. It's also what can you do when running and box jumps. It's also what can you do with deadlifts and burpees. It's also what can you do with putting a 45-pound back on your back and hiking up a mountain for two hours. It's also what can you do for 10 seconds on a max effort, um, assault bike. It's also, so it's when you put in all of these things together, now you get the true breadth of what your capacity is. And the cool part about this is that's never ending. Everyone has, as you said, when you enter in sport, everyone enters it with some sort of set you know, strengths or biases. And then they recognize really quickly their deficiencies. And all of a sudden it's, wow, I have so much to work on. I was the the guy that could, you know, because I came from a triathlon background, pretty comfortable with a mile or a 5k, pretty comfortable with anything aerobic. But when it came to anything with above a body weight barbell, it was a struggle. So man, I have so much to work on anything with short, high power, I couldn't put out. So it was like so much to work on. So this idea of, you know, the diminishing returns that you get in a specialty sport where now you're banging your head for six years for this 1% gain. Now all of a sudden you're thrown back in the, the trenches of an amateur in this sport where all of a sudden everybody now, and everybody is at the amateur level. You know, If we think of this in terms of First, second, and third wave adaptations, you know, first wave being mostly neurological. It's like when you first enter the gym and all of a sudden you can you're learning how to do a bench press into the bar, the 45 pound bar. You know, it's a it's the seventh grader, 13 years old, that gets under bench press for the first time and the 45 pounds is wobbly and shaky. Well, three weeks later, that guy is repping out three sets of 10 really smoothly with 45 pounds, maybe with 65 pounds. Mm -hmm. He didn't get 50% stronger from a contractile potential, but he is 50% stronger from the actual strength of moving the external load. That's a first way of adaptation. Second way of adaptation is when that strength actually translates to other things outside of that endeavor. That's the sport of CrossFit. We're trying to use the gym to get better outside the gym. CrossFit, true CrossFit, the GPP program is about using the one hour class to get better at the other 23 hours outside the gym. So we don't want to, people misconstrue this. They're like, CrossFitters suck at Olympic lifting. CrossFitters suck at mile runs. CrossFitters suck at gymnastics. But yes, compared to the specialist, yes, yes. Because once we get to a certain level of proficiency, we want to work on the next greatest area of need. Mm -hmm. It's not about getting to the upper echelons because the upper echelons as cool and amazing as a sub two hour marathon, as cool and amazing as a thousand pound back squat is, Mm -hmm. that's not where the, 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 the work done translates outside the gym. It stays in the specific endeavor you're only going to get that much better at a deadlift. You don't get that much better at helping someone move because even though you're that much stronger, you spent the last four years adding 150 pounds onto your 900-pound back squat. Like Mm. that doesn't make you a more formidable human being than having a 900-pound back squat. Actually, a more formidable human being has a 600-pound back squat, but can also run a six-minute mile. That is a mean and dangerous person. Like that's what this – Whole endeavor is about. But then what's happened now is the sport has matured, the true sport, the CrossFit Games has matured to where we are now past who has the greatest second waves to who has now the sport specific adaptations within our sport. So it's no longer just about who can do some muscle ups. It's not just about who can do some handstand push ups. It's not who can just do one legged squats it's who has the stamina and the different capabilities of gears. So just like um, a track athlete would have a gear for their 100 meters sprints, their 200, 400, 800 mile 5k half and full marathon paces. We now at our sport need to have those same capabilities for burpees. So you have to have how fast can you do 15, 20 burpees? How fast can you do 50 burpees, which would be a different gear? How fast can you do 100 burpees, 150 burpees, and 300 burpees? Back in the past, that was just like, can you be cyclical with your burpees? Can you just kind of keep going? Mm -hmm. But the sports evolved past the cyclical, past the stamina component into this very skill specific component. And that's just recent. That's in the last three, four, five years. Because before, if you had 20 ring muscle ups and could do 35 strict handstand push ups, you were you were a mean dude. Like you were you were forced to be reckoned with. That's the price of admission now for games athletes. So now it's not who can just do 20 unbroken; it's who can cycle 10 the fastest. Because the sport now demands that. This year at the games, one of the events was 20 sprint to the end of the field, do 20 wall balls then do six dumbbell snatches and run to the end of the field again. Mm -hmm. If you were just had your one single speed, like most endurance athletes do now, what's happened is that endurance athlete is now saying, you know, we're now taking, um, you know, the winner of the Boston marathon and going, Nope, not good enough. We need to, you're going to start this event now with a 100 meter sprint And if you can't do it in under 12 seconds, you're out. Mm. It's like you have that athlete now has to have the breadth of all these different capacities, even within the specific capacities of the sport. So it's not just about gymnastics, conditioning, AKA cardio, aerobic capacity and strength. It's now down to the, it's not even just about inside of those. What's your clean jerk snatch, dead back squat, front squat, strict pull, uh, strict press, push press, and all those it's, can you jerk? How fast can you jerk 135 pounds for 30 reps? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: How is your stamina with, um, that with two to 125 pounds. And now this sport has really kind of like the layers of the onion or the bullseye have really gone out to encapsulate a lot more. And this is why it's cracking into the top Um, the top of the sport is so much more difficult and it's why we're seeing the younger athletes do so well, because back in the day, it was what specialty wins. It was kind of, it's the same, it's the exact same evolution as MMA.
1: Yeah. So back then, the same thing right now
2: It's just, yeah. So back in the day, it's like, who, who's going to win? Is it the wrestler, the kickboxer, the karate guy, Taekwondo, Mm-hmm. Um, the BJJ, um, you know, or the bar, bar, bar room brawler, like tank Abbott. like who is, which of those specialties is the best. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was in the early days of our sport. It's like, is it the strong guy that's going to win Jason Kalipa? Is yeah. it the endurance athlete? Is it, or is it just like the most well-rounded? And now it's these, these, these athletes that have learned and trained this way since they were 12 years old, you know, and this is like the Mal O'Briens and the Haley Adams and the Justin Medeiros, like they actually grew up doing the mixed modal. They're not coming with a specific bias. This is their sport.
1: Yeah. No, that, that was a great backlay for people because I see CrossFit as one of the most complex sports. And I've said this several times in the podcast, ultra endurance and CrossFit are the the kind of last two frontiers of exercise physiology. Um, I remember coming across CrossFit research initially, excuse me, when I was first trying to understand some components, uh, for, for energy systems for MMA. And, um, at that time I was like, wow, they really, there's really nothing there's <laughs> absolute, there's like there's like seven papers in total and most of them are like trying to understand like you know differences in in body composition and different things from from crossfit um and now um i'm seeing tons of papers coming out and it's it's still in the initial phases but i think one of the reasons why it hasn't really been touched um is because it is inherently so complex and it's the same with ultra uh, ultra and distance. it's like well we can't possibly um but i think the more and more i see some of these papers come out okay we are starting to get a an understanding here of you know what are the inherent qualities needed why might this b- might be useful why might might this not be so useful um for crossfitters but it is it is such a deep sport now like i look at the level whether it's the olympic lifting whether it's the gymnastic movements whether it's the endurance times um cuz i was i was scrolling through like every athlete's benchmark kind of numbers and and also some of the the workouts that they've competed in different competitions and it's like these are respectable these are at the level now where like most people would have to spend you know most of their life to even get here um you know whether like we we take the average person going out to train for a 5k most of these crossfitters are you know 18 minutes you know some even sub 18. for most individuals that are out there training to get a sub 18 5k that's an endeavor in itself. That's a huge endeavor. Many people are just not even going to get there. Um, I know really, really good runners that are dedicated to it, and 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 it's like, and and the other thing that kind of was brought to mind was, it's not even the ability to compete at this high level, but when we're talking about these these games, competitions, like you have to repeat that effort at that same pretty much intensity, quality the next day, the next day, the next day, and somehow not come out maimed um, hmm. and, and be able to hold yourself together for a performance on the fifth day or, or whenever, the third day. That's just a whole nother thing in itself. And I remember hearing Evan talk about, he's like, there was a guy in his gym that was blasting insane numbers for some of these workouts, but he's like, he just didn't have the tissue quality, the capacity to do the work day after day. And I just think that's a thing in itself. Like we understand there's some qualities that are going to be able to be built to get someone there, but that's just not something everyone can do to get to the games. Um, So now we're at this point where it's like, just because you train as much as the next guy, doesn't mean you're going to get there anymore. Um, Whereas before we were kind of at that space where it was kind of like, yeah, you know, for most like MMA similar, it's like, yeah, if you train enough, you'll, you'll get there. Um, but now with CrossFit, it's kind of like, okay, first of all, there is some genetic components, like, you know, and then second of all, okay, training, all these different things. So that was interesting Hear You, um, kind of riff off on that. So how, like, what does this look like for an individual? Because I know you, you kind of briefly spoke on, you know, some of these individuals starting from the point where they're doing CrossFit as a teenager. Now I, I know there's a girl here on the Island annika greer i think i think greer is how you say her last name um you know she's been doing crossfit my my partner was saying since she was like 12 or something um and now she's at that level where she's you know cracking for the games um and i'm just thinking about a 12 year old starting off in crossfit but what is kind of the time span what is kind of the career for for a lot of these athletes like how does that look like is it you know six years before they're even cracking into regionals Um, Does it matter in their, their background and how quickly they progress? Can you kind of just go off a little bit on that direction? What does that look like for, for a games level athlete? Like how does that progression kind of move?
2: Yeah, it'd be similar to almost any other sport where there's not a set roadmap, like how long does it take to crack into the top levels of the USC? Well, as you mentioned, it takes, there's a lot of different components. Some of the bigger ones are, what is your athletic background? Um, What is your. Um, the biggest one that I've, I've come across is just, um, the r- ability to respond to training. Hmm. So there just is an inherent thing, whether you call it genetics or whatever it is, some people just respond to training better than others. Meaning you to put two individuals and where like, you know, somebody in your world has seen this dozens, if not more times you put two different people on the same protocol. And one person is going to have massively different responses than others. And that might not be because that protocol is that much better for that person. You put them on any protocol and that yeah. person's going to have better responses. Yeah. It's just this, you know, when I was working with Matt Fraser, it's, this was really opened my eye to that. I've trained a whole bunch of athletes before and whatever we gave Matt, it was like, he just uh, responded to it. You give him, you know, you identify a weakness like GHD sit-ups mm-hmm. and for anybody that hasn't done them, they're devastating at high volume. Like they just tear you up. You could be sore for to the point where, like, coughing will bring you to your knees, um, yeah. and you'll be like that for two or three weeks. It's the domes is like nothing anyone's ever experienced. You know, it's if you're not careful and you're just coming into exposure with them, we've had people get. Um, hospitalized from rhabdo for up to two weeks from just doing one set of them, one set of 30. So without exposure. So they're they're, they're a pretty devastating movement. And he would just have this natural capability to handle the volume and adapt to them incredibly. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with both of his parents being Olympians and the genetics and Mm -hmm. just his upbringing as you you can't separate any one variable or factor, but that's certainly one. He also grew up Um, Doing acrobatic skiing. So basically, a gymnast, but on snow. So it's like even more so. And then spent years at the um, Olympic training facility to try to go to the Olympics as a weightlifter. So the strength and coordination just through the roof. But the biggest thing is the training uh, adaptability that you put someone on a protocol and they get better from it. But the general, if I was to say, what is the general roadmap? It would be. Um, some sort of weightlifting. Um, a lot of people get it through baseball or football or team sports. Yeah. Um, the girls seem to not have as much exposure through it, uh, through pure weightlifting, but the mm-hmm. gymnasts do very well because it's such a strength and explosiveness component to, to gymnastics. So something like that uh in their youth. Mm-hmm. Um, from there, the most recent ones do find CrossFit in their teens. And then the time to crack into the games is somewhere between 20 and 25 years old. Mm -hmm. It's very challenging to crack into the games um, if you're over 20, meaning your rookie year past age 26 or 27. It can get done for sure, Mm -hmm. but most athletes are cracking in in the early um, 20s and then Some athletes have very short lived careers like any sport with a a single or um, two seasons, but then the, the, the norm seems to be you show up three or four years. Mm -hmm. There's the outliers, the amazing athletes, you know um, like Rich, who has done this for 10 years, Cole Sager, um, Travis Mayer, Noah Olson, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the Becca Voits, those type of people that have done this for 10, 15 years. Um, But the norm is sort of five years at a, fairly high level team sport as a teenager, mm-hmm. five years um, trying to get there. And then you could spend about five years competing at the highest level. And then people, you can be super competitive to the point where you could win the games um, up until your early thirties, which is amazing because the you can stay at that high level, but then at age 32, 33, it's like a cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's almost nobody that makes it at 34, 35. There's only like, I think in the history of the sport and I say the last five years or within the real recent where the sports matured and kind of settled, um, there's only like two or three athletes that have made it past the age of 35.
1: Yeah, I, I, some of the things that kind of spoke out to me there when you're, you're kind of discussing that was timeframes and we look at other sports like gymnastics, you know, how long do we see these gymnasts compete for? past their 20s you know very very few and very very few doing it at a high level um then you mix on you know some of the loads that we're seeing and some of the inherent qualities like like we know the cardiovascular components to these things like these are all going to start declining um as age starts setting in heart rate starts getting lower affecting vo2 max um like all these different components and you know kind of sitting at the central piece of this is like Ability to handle volume Mm -hmm. at high intensity. That is just, we know with pretty much every sport, that ability gets lower and lower. Whether it's weightlifting, whether it's powerlifting, whether it's endurance sport, your ability to handle high intensity volume lowers as you age. Um, And I kind of see that with CrossFit. It's like these these individuals that have a a massive ability to handle high intensity volume, because that's the name of the game. This is a sport everything you're competing is at a high intensity in the sport and if you just can't handle that volume to build those capacities it's it's going to be tough yeah what what are some of the things that you've like because you you picked out a few there actually which was kind of reminding me of mma mma sorry is like you know you have to like most people you have to have a solid background of you know a grappling sport of some sort or you know kickboxing boxing but A lot of it does kind of like gear towards, um, you know, wrestling nowadays like or or jiu-jitsu in itself. But wrestling Mm -hmm. is really kind of a key pivotal because you can control whether it's, you know, standing up or on the ground. If you have that one player, if you're just jiu-jitsu or just a kickboxer, you don't really have that ability to control that variable. Um, We're like, we kind of talked about the development process, but where do you see kind of a lot of the biggest bang for your buck? with some of these kind of CrossFit modalities, because, and I obviously understand that it's going to be very dependent, dependent on the athlete that who is in front of you and their inherent qualities. But, you know, when we look at a lot of these movements, if we had to boil it down to maybe two disciplines, where do you see kind of majority of this this modality kind of said, is it, is it weightlifting specific movements and, and gymnastic movements? Does that make it up? Do you think it's locomotion, whether that's, you know, running or, you know, whatever it is, maybe even on the on the bike or some of these different types of things, where do you see kind of the biggest core of the modalities kind of sitting at for, for CrossFit?
2: Yeah, I think you just nailed the two. Um, yeah. it's essentially, you think of it in terms of like permission to play, mm-hmm. you there's prescribed loads in the sports and there's prescribed movements and then there's prescribed, um, um, tasks. Mm-hmm. So a- example would that be if you don't have a, I mean, the two that you named specifically was, um, strength weightlifting and gymnastics, mm-hmm. you essentially have to have the strength and the skills as we call them to be able to compete in the sport. Once you have those, then it becomes um essentially who can tolerate the most um volume and uh threshold like un- like uh threshold essentially like mm-hmm. yeah. it, it, their anaerobic threshold. Yeah, yeah. um so an example of this would be, there are events in our sport that, um, you have to be able to deadlift 405 pounds for about 30 reps. Mm -hmm. So if you can't do that, you don't even get to participate. You need to be able to clean and jerk 355 pounds. Like if you can't do that, you don't participate. If you can't, um, snatch, um, 200 and uh, 90 pounds, like you're kind of on the sidelines looking. So you have to have that prerequisite level of strength, which is pretty dang strong. Those are those would those numbers would qualify you for the American Open,
1: yeah.
2: um, at a middle uh, weight class, as you said. Like the sports really evolving. Similar to that is you have to have the capacity to be able to walk on your hands for 150 feet unbroken without coming down. You have to be able to do 30 strict handstand push-ups. Be able to do. 60, um, unbroken pull-ups. You need to be able to do 20 unbroken, uh, muscle-ups. So you need to be able to do, um, a certain number of pistols, one-legged squats. So there's this level of skills and strength that you need to be able to play. Strength takes the longest to develop. So strength takes years and years to develop. You don't just get to go on a, um, six week, <laughs> um, training cycle and, and be able to snatch 300 pounds. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. If you want to snatch 300 pounds, you have to be dedicated, um, for years. The next thing that takes the longest is skills in order to be able to do 20 unbroken muscle ups. It's the same thing. You can't just go on a six week muscle up program. You need to dedicate, you know, years, plural, but not maybe four or five, six, but a couple years to that. And the funniest thing about that is, once you have those things, those things no longer are the thing that determine the winners. Mm-hmm. The winners are the ones that have the prerequisites that they can do those things. But then it's the ones that have the highest work tolerance mm-hmm. that can basically do the things the fastest um, and be able to get. It's basically like uh, as you know, the popular term now and your is like probably like critical power. It's yeah. who can kind of move that needle up the highest and the interesting thing is that a lot of times that is modal specific right just because you have critical power um you know or like a vo2 max like your vo2 max is modal specific if you do a vo2 max on a bike it'll be different than on a runner and very different than if you're not a swimmer and that's very much how our sport is now we don't get it's not the person with the highest vo2 max that wins it's the high person that can move the, the, um, that can produce the highest average power. And that's the way it is, is who has, who can actually move the most efficiently, um, to be able to, um, get across the finish line first.
1: Yeah, no, that, that was a great illumination because this is the, the kind of paradox that is seen in endurance sport as well as you have to have a specific, um, not a specific, but you have to have a certain VO2 max and economy to play the game. You have to have a certain fractional utilization to play the game, like the traditioner, traditional coil and joiner model, right? The three endurance parameters. And now possibly looking at the fourth, which is durability, which is essentially what you're talking about in, in CrossFit. It's the same thing. Like this new parameter durability that they're putting forth, your ability to resist fatigue your ability to keep your physiology stable throughout successive events of work. Right. So, cause we know some people might have the ability to come out and be a one hit wonder. Um, but as soon as they go into that second workout, their physiology is now working at a 70% capacity. Yeah. Um, so for them to max out and then it, you know, another 65% now and another, whatever. Um,
2: that's a sport. huge part of our sport because people that maybe aren't as familiar, unlike a lot of other sports, football, it's once every seven days, yeah. basketball, it's three times a week, hockey, it's three times a week, baseball, it's three nights in a row, one day off. Um, in our sport, it's three events in a day across five days. Yeah. So as you're saying, it if you pour it out in event one and you lack the ability, the durability, to come back and put the same effort forth in event two, much less event 13, 14, and 15, you're, you're just not competitive. And I think that's one of the more impressive things that's happened in our sport is um, the, the tolerance to volume at, the, the, at that level is just incredible. People watch you know, days four and five of the CrossFit Games and they're enamored with these guys with their ability. And that's not even taking into account the twelve events they've done across the previous three days, yeah. it's it's kind of um, you know rewriting the, the capacities of what humans can do in a sense. You know, exercise science back in the day, you say like, okay, you can either have a five hundred pound back squat or a five minute mile. You're not going to have both, yeah. and that's not necessarily the case. We can. I'd love to ask you, though, Matt, because um, it's I'm a coach, not exercise. You're Durability, you said it's the fourth of the three. What are the other three?
1: So VO2 max would be the first one. Mm -hmm. And this is for endurance sport, but it does, especially for CrossFit, I see a lot of this transferring over. Second one is economy or efficiency for cycling. Um, The third one is fractional utilization. So essentially how much of that VO2 max can you maintain for your threshold? So Mm -hmm. basically where does that lactate curve sit and and the relevance of your vo2 max right the guys that can have a lactate threshold at 86 percent of their vo2 max versus someone that's at you know 60 of their vo2 max that's really what's kind of going to dictate that's one of the big parameters that's going to dictate who is elite how close to your maximum can you tolerate at threshold mm-hmm. um and then the fourth the 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 durability is is like i said it's your ability to essentially keep your physiology stable through repeated work or a certain amount of work Um, and that's made up of psychological motivational that's made up of uh, thermal regulatory capacity metabolic capacities um, uh, muscle trauma the ability to uh, minimize muscle trauma but also deal with uh, the muscle trauma um, ability to deal with uh, essentially acidic environments a bunch of stuff goes into that durability kind of equation. And honestly, I think this is going to be, if I had to pick one specific parameter that I think would lend itself to CrossFit in itself as the number one predictor would be durability itself. Um, because it really encapsulates almost all of those three plus its own kind of, you know, parameter of not being able to be manipulated that far down the rabbit hole. Um, so yeah, that I think I think it will have great use for CrossFit. Hopefully we'll start to see some of this stuff start being applied in the CrossFit research. But yeah. Yeah.
2: Love that. Yeah. yeah the durability one is, uh, it's similar to what we're, our sport is so varied that by a consequence of that is no one is going to be able to um, become elites at the second parameter you named, which was like movement economy.
1: Yeah, which is, running. and you
2: mentioned yeah. in cycling, if there's yeah. any sport that doesn't require movement economy that much, it's like where you're just on a fixed pedal. Exactly. Just like, yeah. it, like it's just the movement pattern is fixed for you. Mm-hmm. If you expand that out to the next thing, it was like running, where it's just mm-hmm. this bipedal, essentially really fast walking. Mm-hmm. Even there, the people with the greatest movement economy are going to do so much better. In our sport, it's kind of why your last one, the durability lends itself to that one because you have Mm -hmm. to put in so much volume to be able to get to um, economies of movement. Meaning another way to think about this is in principle, not in actuality, but like the Eric Erickson 10,000 hours rule. If you wanna put in 10,000 hours of pull-ups, of burpees, of biking, of cleans, of snatches, of running, rowing, of, Uh, it's just an impossibility. You can't get there in all of those things. So by that, by the, the sad consequence of that is no one in our sport is going to get to an elite level in any one of those things, but they have to work at so hard at so many that they're going to be putting in way more than the 10,000 hours or suboptimal results. So it's going to be who can handle the, the demands of the training, Um, you know, and, and not get burnt out, injured, um, who can recover the fastest to get to the next training session. Yeah. I think it's a huge component to it.
1: Yeah, and that's right. why
2: young athletes are kind of, you know, it's really hard to crack in at
1: 28, 29, 30. Yeah, 100%. It, it, if you look at like military selection, it's the same thing. There's plenty of individuals that are capable of being great operators. Um, but after the age of 30, your ability to succeed through those selections or multiple selections is going to be very, very limited. That's why you kind of see that average age is like, you know, 23, 24, you know, and um, I'm even seeing that right now with ultra marathon, the guy that took back Zach bitters um, record, Alexander Sorksen, I think is I think that's what his name is. He's an Eastern European runner, 230 mile weeks for like several months in a row. I want to say mm. like five months, just the, the gnarly. Like, if if you can if you can let alone do that but continuously adapt to that, you are probably going to have the record. Like that's yeah. just a thing. Like if you can tolerate that volume and improve from that, 110% you're gonna have the record for 12 hours for probably 24 hours, and he's still continuing can, continuously moving on this kick of high volume. Um, so yeah, that's one of the things I'm actually interested to hear. Um, you know, how do you kind of manage this intervention response like a lot of coaches have a different way of doing this especially with endurance sport we can see heart rate response every time they get on the bike we can see the response to the interval we can see even with other things that we're using using for measurement of intervention and response but with crossfit this is like this is kind of like this we have so many things to try and manage here at once how do you start to wrap your head around uh, optimal intervention, optimal kind of response for an athlete. How do you start to wrap your head? Is it a lot of talking with the athlete? Is it a lot of just crunching the numbers? Is it, is it both? Is it also HRV? Is it also, you know, subjective scores? What, how how are you kind of looking at this, uh, for athletes looking in their response to, to training?
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a cross-section of all the things that you just named. Um, so we'll take, HRV, we'll take resting heart rate, we'll take um, um the ambiguous, how do you feel today? Yeah. Um, we'll take the performance numbers, we'll take um the eyeball test from the coach. Yeah. Um, we'll take uh the the post-first workout training of how did that feel? Um, but to get a more specific answer to that, I found um, you know, whether it's using technology or performance metrics or the conversation with the coach. I found that the conversation, this is, I found that the conversation with the coach is the most beneficial and accurate, mm-hmm. um, especially athletes in our sport.
1: Um, they. Um, I can see, I think I, I, think I know where you're going. Yeah. I can see. It's just,
2: they, they'll want to basically you have to the athlete and coach have to build a really strong relationship Mm -hmm. if you use data to tell them to slow down um they're not going to like that
1: yeah yeah, and
2: there's the data i mean how many times have we you know we're not doing really high sophisticated testing on them on a daily basis something that you might do in a lab so Mm -hmm. we're using things like um heart rate which there's a lot of different factors that could be affecting their heart rate. We're mm-hmm. using things like HRV and, um, 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 you know, performance metrics, but all of those things, I believe, maybe I'm just old school, take a mm-hmm. second seat to the conversation in the beginning of the day, which is, um, how are you feeling this morning mm-hmm. and don't answer. And you're not allowed to answer pretty good. yeah. So, yeah. cause yeah. everyone will say pretty good. It's kind of like the, the, the diet question. You're like, how's your diet? Everyone's like, it's pretty good. Like mm-hmm. it's just ask someone how their diet is. And I guarantee you, they will say it's pretty good mm-hmm. unless they're like either really honest <laughs> or way off the rails.
0: Yeah. yeah, It's the same
2: thing with our athletes. How are you feeling this morning? I feel pretty good. Yeah. And then you have to take the next three or four steps. So we have sort of different metrics, you know, how's your energy? How's your excitement to train? How's your soreness? Mm-hmm. Um, and then even sometimes that, most they're they're not feeling great most of the time. It's the nature of, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure that the guy that's running 230 miles a week isn't waking up the next morning at 5 30 a.m. feeling really spry. But <laughs> takes him, it takes him a couple hours to shake it out and really feel how he's feeling. So mm-hmm. you know, having the conversation before and after their warm-up sessions and after their first training session. And then um the next thing, which has been kind of this more of a recent uh illumination for us is the one of the really sexy fun things about our sport is the the level of variance. Mm-hmm. You know, the the there's so many different things to train and get better at and the things that we could be tested in are infinite. So because of that, we like to train that way. And we like to mix up the combinations and the protocols and the weights and the loads and the volume and all the rest. And what we found is that um, creating consistency across training weeks has been very beneficial to help athletes stay in the groove. Um, you know, the last thing we want to do is um, make drastic changes for the sake of changes.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, if something's working, we want to keep it working and essentially keep the athletes in a groove because it's, uh, it's a challenging aspect of our sport. Um, you know, the best, the saying is the best training program is the one that you're not doing. Because the one that you're not doing is the one that could potentially be giving you the most gain. If you're doing this, there's so many other things you are not doing. It's kind of like, you know, look at a grain of sand on the beach. You examine that one grain of sand. You are by definition missing the rest of the beach. Mm -hmm. So it's this kind of dichotomy, this kind of uh, catch-22 of dialing in a training program. So there's some level of consistency. So you can measure um, drop some performance across days and weeks, but also creating enough variance that you're, um, checking all the boxes that need to be checked.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Here, that was interesting hearing too, because <clears throat> that is one of the things where there can be some anxiety and some, you know, misunderstanding is you know, the, the sport of CrossFit in itself is already massively varied. Like you said, Um, And sometimes I see athletes going too far on that spectrum of like, I have to do literally every specific exercise that was in the open, the CrossFit Games, the regionals, um, you know, in successive order, almost like to hit everything, right? I got to get my, and realistically, especially as a developing CrossFit athlete, you, you have to take the time to hone in. If we're, if there's no effort being applied in one specific area, the stimulus is going to be too varied to adapt to really anything. We know that like, for example, this is one of the things that it took me a while to learn on. And when I was powerlifting as a a younger individual is like, is there a way that I can adapt better to spending? Because when you think about it, how much time am i actually spending doing a bench press and this is a sport I'm doing. Is there a way that I can spend more time doing the bench press? but also doing it in a way that's not gonna affect, you know, my strength gains. Is there more time that I can spend doing that specific skill that is going to, you know, whether it's Pareto principle or whatever type of principle you wanna use, 80-20, that is really going to hone down and get me better at my sport. Um, Because I think that can be lost and it can be hard because the type of individual that comes to CrossFit is the type of individual that wants variance, right? They wanna do it all. but yeah, trying to find that sweet spot of, hey, what is, what is sufficient here um, and what is going to get me uh, gains? And also, what can we, we specifically measure? Because when you're trying to get better at a sport, um, like you said, the responders, we have to see if you're actually responding. Like, right. If you're not responding, we, we have no idea.
2: So that's, it's one of the differences between um, regular everyday CrossFitters, which... I'm of that group right now that just goes mm-hmm. to a class and tries to stay fit and the elites in our space, if the elites in our space are still training with, the, the, the same protocols that the everyday athlete does, which is the everyday athlete might see something like handstand pushups mm-hmm. once every two weeks in their training program. Yeah. You know, if there's an, it's sort of like an ABB B week protocol. And when they come through the upper body pushing, you know, it's going to cycle through all of the different protocols. It's going to show up once every seven to 10 days. If you're an elite athlete and you're trying to excel at handstand pushups and you're only doing them once every two weeks, you're not going to excel. You're not going to get the prerequisite volume, as you said, mm-hmm. to get better at that movement. If you think of the way that specialists get better at their sport, swimmers swim every day. Yeah. Like if you want to get better at swimming, you need to swim every day. If you want to get better at being on your hands, you need to be on your hands every day. Mm -hmm. So one of the big challenges of our sports is identifying where is it that we want to spend our currency. Mm -hmm. And if you have $100 to spend every week and you're spending $2 of it every week on handstand push-ups, that might just be wasted money. Like you just spend $2 and you're not getting anything for that. Cause it's not enough to elicit a response. So it's this big, it's this real challenge of figuring out where are we going to um, put forth our efforts to get the most bang for our buck and not just burn up matchsticks for the sake of burning them.
1: Yeah. That's um, yeah. I think that can be hard for, for people to try and organize. And that's why I think coaching is, is so integral for, for CrossFit compared to some other sports where you can really kind of figure things out. If you're a keen individual, you can figure things out to a fairly good degree, whether it's, you know, running cycling, you pick up a few books, um, or even powerlifting for that sake, right. You just tack on a program. Most people are going to adapt fairly well to some of those programs, as long as they're kind of self-monitoring, um, you know, response, but for CrossFit, this is where I really see, um, you know, coaches take a, a massive role here. Like there's, there's not many sports, like it's kind of similar to MMA. Like, you know, there's not many sports where you have a coach that can really kind of crunch a lot of this data altogether. And that's why you see now in MMA, it's not just one coach anymore. It's like you have like three or four coaches because, there's just the level is so high here you're there's no way you can be a head mma coach and also a head jiu-jitsu coach and unless you're like a faraz a hobby, a matt hume like the rare rare breeds of individuals um but with crossfit it is kind of almost that way because the olympic lifting coach like yes you, obviously it's great but a lot of times it's hard for him to understand the limitations um that come along with the volume that is needed for for crossfit and all the other modalities so sometimes yeah i could see that being difficult as a coach trying to manage all these different these different aspects that a, an athlete really does need to get better so i can kind of see the value of having like some of these contractors come in and work with athletes one off whether it's you know s- s- skill blocks and things like this but really the the level of coaching is 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 insane yeah but um Let's, let's talk about what do you think, this is something I've, I've kind of heard put forth from, from someone else that was in the CrossFit space years ago. Where do you see this thing going? How do you see the game shifting? Because we've seen it kind of shift several times already. And we're now in this place where the games is looking even five years back, five years before that. It's completely different animals. Um, And every year there seems to be these kind of major tweaks in some areas. Where do you see the CrossFit Games uh, 10 years from now? What what do you think that looks like?
2: I think the format will be similar, but the test and the capacities of the athletes will continue to evolve. The format um, seems to work very well with certain small tweaks, but essentially you have a worldwide open where anyone in the world with an internet connection and 20 bucks can sign up and compete for this thing. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And it's created the biggest participatory sporting event in the world. There's close to half a million people that participate in this singular event, which is awesome from there. They whittle that down to the top 10% for a quarterfinal event, which is also done online. Then from there, there's a, um, in real life, you travel to a semifinal event. I think that there will be some, uh, continued tweaking at that level. That's the level that seems ripe to kind of continue to hone in on, Mm -hmm. um, in the years past, it it was done regionally, which I think was a, a really, um, there's a lot of benefits to that. And I think that we might see that emerge again. And the top athletes out of that go to compete at the world championships, um, which traditionally have been held in the United States. And that's the top, um, 30 to 40 girls and guys. There's also age groups and specialty divisions, um, in terms of, um, special populations. Um, so I think that that, that with small tweaks is going to kind of stick and stay. The thing that I think is going to continue to evolve is the way that the test evolves over the last, uh, we're at year about 16, I believe Mm -hmm. the lat, the first five years of that was really figuring stuff out. Mm -hmm. You know, it was not, in my opinion, they were not necessarily figuring out who the world's fittest athletes were. They were figuring out who the fittest was amongst us. Right. Mm -hmm. It was like, you invite all your friends to the barbecue and you figure out who the fittest is amongst your friends. Yeah. And that's the natural growth of any sport, whether it's MMA or BMX or kite surfing, whatever it might be, as sports evolve, they, the the reach and the standardization of the test improves. From about 2013, 14, 15 to uh, last year, I think the sport really matured and got its foothold really well. Mm-hmm. And as it did that, it also fell into some rhythms. Um, where the the test, although it's unknown and unknowable, became pretty predictable in a sense. Mm-hmm. It continued to test work capacity across broad time, mold domains, which it should. It tested that in a even fashion with enough tests, it should meaning that um, somebody that it shouldn't give an advantage to somebody that's seven feet tall and should not give us an advantage to somebody that's four foot nine. It should. Um, the, 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 uh, the mean, it should add, uh, favor the mean and the standard deviations should be just what they are. Yeah. Um, but of all of the things it did, there was the one kind of like uh, repetitive thing it did was we knew that there was going to be a, some form or fashion of a max effort Olympic lift. Sometimes it was a snatch, sometimes it was a clean, sometimes a clean and jerk. Um, Rare occasions, it was an auxiliary move like a front squat or an overhead squat. Um, But usually it was a, usually meaning like 90% of the time, we saw one, if not both of those things. Mm -hmm. Because of that, the sport swung in that direction in terms of capacity. I said it before, but any games level athlete could at any time walk in and qualify for the American Open. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not nothing. Like that's, that's a pretty high level, yeah. but they, none of these athletes could go on to a high school track team and be probably in the starting five. Yeah. Like, cause it wasn't, that's not where the there, it wasn't known and it wasn't tested singularly it was tested inside of other events. Meaning, whereas the clean and jerk was just that, 100 points for your max clean and jerk. When it came to running, it was running with swimming. It was running with rope climbs. It was running with um, thrusters. It was running with burpees or D balls or some other object. Mm. So because of that, it wasn't set that we need to know what your one mile time is. Mm. And had they tested, the one mile time, imagine if like they leapfrog years, just like they do at the games. One year it's snatch, one year it's clean and jerk, one year it's snatch, one year it's clean and jerk, but you know, it's coming. People are going to excel at that, that sport. If it was every year, we're going to do 5k, one mile, 5k, yeah. one mile, 5k, one mile. Are yeah. the capacities of athletes would be, you mentioned that some of these guys are able to run 18 minute, five k's. We'd be running sub 16 minute, five k's. That's yeah. just, we, that's what they'd be doing. Yeah. But we haven't done that. That's where I think the sport is going to go. And it did it this year um, a little bit. It did it more so in the in the form of gymnastics. We had the highest um, jump in requirements for gymnastics skills that we've had ever. Mm-hmm. So in one year, we had, uh, I think, six new gymnastics movements tested, which usually will get one if not zero, you know, uh, we make get a pegboard and everyone like loses their mind about the pegboard. The year that they introduced yeah. legless rope climbs, it was like, they lost their leg. Well, this year we had legless pegboards and, um, L-sit rope climbs and parallel traverses, um, across, uh, um, dip bars. We had strict, um, um, stationary bar dips. We had unbroken pistols, we had uh, double under crossover. I mean, the number we had five or six new, we had pirouettes, um, standing pirouettes. Yeah. Um, th- there was so many new implements that this year was like, okay, we've, we've done a really nice job of elevating where we are in the weightlifting world. And I think that all the CrossFitters are proud of their capacities as weightlifters. This was the first year that we're starting to see it in terms of, um, Gymnastics. We had press-to-handstands. Press-to-handstands is not nothing. That's a pretty high-level gymnastics move. If you can do that, you are a pretty high-level gymnast. Now, you're not going to the Olympics, just like none of our athletes are going to the Olympics for weightlifting. Yeah. But you have more than um, amateur-level abilities. Then also, for the first time, we got tested just a little bit about um, uh, aerobic capacity in a single – Uh, aspect we've done weird one-offs right we've done weird things like a marathon row but no one does marathon rows so there's no standardization of what that score actually should be so we have no way of saying like like weightlifting we should be able to snatch 310 pounds and clean and jerk 365 like Mm -hmm. those those are really good impressive numbers for rowing let's throw out what's your 2k row and what Mm -hmm. they did this year for the first time was they did a 1k row. This is pretty gnarly and really cool. They did a 1k row, but you had to finish it in under a 137.5 average pace. So a 315, uh, which would be a 630 2k. You had to finish in that time or your event was over. So it's like pass fail. And then from there, you actually went into the competition.
1: Yeah.
2: So That's the first time that we've been like, hey, you need to be able to do this single test. And to me, I think that's where the sport's going to go over the next 10 years. Weightlifting will continue to evolve, but um at the margins, right? Mm. The the 0.5%, 1%. Every now and then you will see a two or three percent increase year over year. Gymnastics, because of what we saw this year, next year we'll see a massive gain. People put a lot of emphasis into that. And then in terms of the aerobic capacity of you know, a 10 minute Salt bike test, air bike test, 2K rows, one mile, um, 5K runs. I think that that is the next thing to elevate. And over the next 10 years, I would see the capacity of this being sort of just that like the numbers that would get you into um, any one of those things at a super, super high level amateur level.
1: Yeah.
2: So plus 300 pound snatches plus 365, 385 pound clean and jerks, um, sub six, uh, 22 K rows, mm-hmm. um, sub, uh, 16 minute, five K runs sub five minute, you know, four forty miles, um, that type of, ca- that type of capacity.
1: Yeah. That's, that's interesting. And seeing like, it was a really good global perspective for people to see that shift that you laid out there because, It is, it is interesting because yeah, when we look at kind of the staple, especially a lot of, you know, what people really do hone their hat on, like, because even I'm thinking about a CrossFit athlete that I'm working with, like the, that is seared in to the subconscious, those clean and jerk ladders and those, you know, those, those big lifts, those ladders are seared into the subconscious. So the athlete doesn't realize how much, even whether their their programming is coming from someone else or not, is geared towards that kind of huge shift. And like you talked about the huge thing with the gymnastics kind of being displayed this year with the new movements. I can see this being like, you know, something else that's going to be seared in, like just like the pegboard, yeah. right? Like everyone yep. lost their mind. How much time do people spend on pegboards? Because mm-hmm. it's just seared into the subconscious and there's no way of escaping it anymore. Um, and when you, I think that's the the interesting thing is, is whenever you it's just like teaching if you sit there and i was you know coming into a class and the teacher sits me and asks me about specific uh, mechanisms behind whatever type of biology and i'm just below the level of really that understanding my engagement is going to be there for much more enhanced for the rest of that program for the for for the rest of that lesson for the rest of my time in that class i'm going to be engaged because there was a gap that got exposed. Right. And I'm going to feel this inherent need and drive. And, and it's just really a manipulation of, of the psychology to, to get people to learn. Right. Um, so that's interesting hearing you kind of speak on it that way, because I do see like I do see glimpses of people doing really well in some of those aerobic kind of domains like the, the moderate and, and heavy and, and even some severe domain type work with the strict like, um, you know, endurance sports and modalities. I seen like that Lucas guy pull off that two. I want to say it was like a two thirty uh, row marathon, which is like that's hmm. or two twenty five, maybe even two twenty. Like that's super impressive. That's super impressive for someone to hold that quality at that size, at that type of capacity of of strength. Um, so that will be interesting because I do see that kind of as like we're talking about frontiers earlier. It's kind of like when you kind of mention, I'm like, yeah, that is kind of the last frontier that hasn't really been brought out yet and the way that you described um them drawing out the quality like hey you have to hit sub six twenty to be in this talk you have to be sub whatever it is five minutes to be here you have to be sub 12 seconds in the sprint that is something that i think is so genius because now you can't we would all do it like if we were kind of the you know whether it was suicides, we'd all kind of like lollygag to the race to get, oh yeah, we're all together. Kind of, you know what I mean? That's just human psychology. But whenever they're specific specifically drawing it out and saying, hey, you have to max out here, or else you're not going to be in this next round. I think that's that's genius. And that's gonna bring out a not only an entertainment value, but also like a very fascinating like quality of the human having to build up to that. That that's gonna be. Um, super interesting. What are, what are some of the areas that you're interested in now? I know, uh, recently, like I've heard a lot of your podcasts on the psychology of the athlete, um, the psychology of the human being, where are some of the areas that you've been interested in and kind of enhancing your knowledge or also just even with working with athletes, what are some of the areas that you're really trying to sink your teeth into trying to understand better, um, trying to wrap your head around what, what are some of the things that have kind of brought interest to you lately? You just nailed it. That's uh,
2: the psychology, and essentially um, beyond the psychology, it's how psychology drives performance, um, and at a bigger perspective, health. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, it's it's something that I've been really fascinated, in basically because like what are what are the mechanisms that get us to where we want to be, whether that's the top of the podium or um, you know kicking ass when we're A hundred years old. So, and you can determine what kicking ass means. Well, in order to get there, what we've all been doing is pouring our hearts into most recently, we understand how nutrition affects that. Like Mm -hmm. most people have a pretty darn good grasp of that. Mm -hmm. In your world, in my world, we also have a really good understanding of how exercise drives that as well. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to get there with sleep and some other stuff as well. But I think one of the biggest gaps is this mind body connection. Mm -hmm. And up until recently, as recently as the 60s, like there was no connection. There was the mind and there was the body. Mm -hmm. The body was for the chemists, it was a matter of chemical reactions in the body, Mm -hmm. it was a matter of how cells reacted to. Um, different stimulus. stimulus. Yeah. Exactly. And then there was the mind, which essentially was for the yogis and the mystics and the crazies mm-hmm. and the psychologists. And it was soft and it was weird. And to the point where even to this day, if someone has a physical ailment, uh, the sympathy and support is widespread. If someone is diagnosed with cancer, everyone, feels sorry for that person, understands the struggle that they're going through and the support both from friends, family, and the mental community is far and wide. Mm-hmm. If someone is struggling on the mental side, still this, and this is the, this is the gap. Mm-hmm. People are like, okay, there's, there's, some, there's something weird with them. They're messed mm-hmm. up. It, maybe it's not real. Mm-hmm. And that's a huge gap that is not the case.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: In fact, in terms of the different factors that we have that influence our health and performance, exercise, nutrition, sleep being the foremost, the one that drives, the, drives that, it underpins all of those and will override all of those is the mind. Mm-hmm. And what the mind does is the mind uses the five senses, what you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you feel, what you smell, to interpret the external environment and send a signal, as you just said, a stimulus to the cells. Your cells are unable to interpret the external environment. What we know from biology 101 from epigenetics is that your environment dictates the cell if you put certain strands of DNA in a Petri dish, one will grow in different environments. One will grow into bone, one will grow into muscle, and one will grow into fat. The -hmm. same strands of DNA. Mm -hmm. It is not your DNA that causes sickness. It is the epigenetics, meaning it is the environment that those genes are put into. Mm -hmm. Well, how do those genes get the signals of what the environment is? Well, unlike your skin, which senses the feel, because that's what it does, the cells have to get that through the nervous system. Mm -hmm. That's the only way that the cells inside your body get those signals. And if we put those cells in a state where they can do their job, they can rest and repair and grow, we're creating an environment for healthy cells. If we put those cells in a stressed environment, the um, immune system is suppressed and it, the body's really efficient. It goes, hey, let's not fight off these pathogens in our bodies right now. Let's not worry about clearing out these toxins in the body right now. All hands on deck, get to the working muscles and extremities so we can run away from this saber-toothed tiger. Mm-hmm. When we get back to the campfire, then we'll go back to this rest. It's such an efficient system for survival. The problem is that the acute moments of the saber-tooth tiger have been replaced with the chronic stress of bosses, traffic, social media, um, spouses, and the the ailments of modern society. So what's happening now is these cells that should be doing their job of creating health are being told, "Don't do that. Instead." all hands on deck to fight this immediate acute response, which isn't there, but is there all the time in the mind, turns it into from acute to chronic. Mm -hmm. And this is where chronic levels of stress suppress the immune system and mess up our, our, our ability to perform, our ability to heal, our ability to be healthy, our ability to age appropriately. So how do we do that? We have to understand the mechanisms that create this, which is first and foremost, there is a signal. There is a trigger. There is something that comes in through your five senses, Hmm. an event. So someone says something to you that you don't like. You read something or see something on social media. Somebody, you're in a bar and somebody bumps into you and makes you spill your drink. All those things are events that are coming in through your five senses. Hmm. Those events create either consciously or subconsciously a thought. Most people think it just skips over that stage, but it doesn't. Your body either, you either recognize it or you don't. Most people don't because they're on autopilot, just running on a program of their past conditioning and they don't recognize this sequence that there is a thought, but there is. An event happens, it creates a thought. That thought creates a cascade of hormones in the body which elicit an emotion. Mm -hmm. That emotion then reinforces the thought. So an example, Um, you um, go to your workout. When you come back um, from your workout, you see that someone at the gym posted a picture of you working out with a caption underneath. Mm -hmm. The first comment underneath is, um, whoa, I thought he worked out every day. Why is he so chubby? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Okay. There was an event. You read that thing. Mm-hmm. Right away, there was a subconscious thought that came through your past And then it leads to this like anger or frustration or some level of um, pissed off or sadness and emotion, which then creates another thing like my life isn't good. And now you go through this sequence, this cycle, the thought, the thinking emotion loop, which is really hard to get out of. Some people, it takes them days or weeks or some people it takes them months to get past an incident like that Mm -hmm. and the problem is while they're in that one another one pops up and it reinforces it again which then leads to the physiological responses that wouldn't be so bad if it was truly just about depression but what happens is that depression then changes your physiology the different levels of hormones in the body are released differently. Your performance goes down. Literally, your arteries close up and not much as much blood flow goes through. You can't breathe as deeply because your chest is contracting. You're basically be put into this fight or flight mode. And that over time creates a, a, a horrific um, waterfall effect on your, at worst on your performance, but I'm sorry, at, at, at best on your performance, at worst on your lifespan. It's just shortening up where you're going to be in 20 years. So the hack to that system is popping out of that pre-programming. And literally the, the whole idea of how do you move through that is to recognize and be aware of what's happening. Get out of the preconditioning that this is just a sequence of events and I have no control over it. You don't, and you're not going to try to change. You're not going to try to gain control first off, you can't control. So down the sequence, you're not going to have control of the events. But that's what people spend lifetimes creating. They don't want people to say that they're chubby. So they set up their whole life to not be chubby. They go to the gym every day. They eat a certain way. They dress a certain way. They spend enough time in front of the mirror. They only pose in pictures a certain way. They only post certain things. They're trying to create their entire world to make sure that that's a, that is you living in a slave to try to control the other billion people on planet Earth to make sure that they don't say anything bad about you. That is a horrible way to live life. So stop trying to control the external environments. The next sequence of events is the thought. Your thoughts are set up, they're conditioned based off your past programming. Mm -hmm. In year When you were six, someone called you fat. You didn't like that. It made you sad. So now you know if somebody calls you fat, like So you're just constantly trying to, the mind is kind of keep you in survival, keep you avoiding those situations and going like, see, see, don't don't go to the gym. That's where people take pictures of you. And they post pictures of you on social media and people say mean things. So it's this thought thing that's trying to keep you from uncomfortable situations. Stop trying to control the environment. Stop trying to control the mind and the thoughts. Let the thoughts happen recognize, no, here's where you got to be. Recognize when emotions get out of whack. Recognize when something hits your shit, you have stuff inside of you. When something hits that inside of you, you're going to feel it someplace. Some people feel it in their gut. Some people feel it in their solar plexus. Some people feel it in their chest. Some people feel it in their head. Mm-hmm. I feel it in like the top of my gut. Like when it hits me, like, like somebody says something that, Uh, makes me feel angry, frustrated, sad, whatever it is. I feel it right there. Can you become aware of that in real time? Mm -hmm. That's a challenge. Most people can't because what comes after it right away is an emotion. And that sends you away from this opportunity to kind of sit in that for a little bit. You want to when something hits your stuff and you feel that thing hang out there for a second. Oh, but we don't want to do that, but try to hang out there and don't try to control the thoughts. This is what people try to do. Like, try to put rose tinted glasses over it. Try to mm-hmm. um uh try to convince themselves of something that actually isn't true. Like um, it's okay, that person's probably struggling their own home, and that's why they're being mean to me. Like, forget all instead, just stop listening to the voice in your head. Don't try to change it, let it run its course. When you try to change it, what you're doing is you're pushing it down. It doesn't go away then. You're just trying to push it down. It's essentially that voice in your head is a child throwing a tantrum. Mm -hmm. Your mind can do a bunch of different things. It can problem solve, it can focus, it can be in a flow state, or it can be incessant chatter. When it's just doing it, that annoying little toddler throwing a tantrum, that's when it's in chatter mode. Mm -hmm. It's not doing anything than ripping away at your soul. Yeah. So how do you stop a child from having a tantrum? You don't try to rationally convince them yeah. of something else. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows this. At least every parent does. If you want a child to stop throwing a tantrum, you ignore them. That's the, that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you want to do is give them attention. And you certainly don't want to give them what, they, what they're asking for. Because that's going to create the habit loop. Mm-hmm. So the best thing you can do is ignore them. And over time, that child will calm down and won't be nagging at you. If we stop giving so much credence and attention to the chatter in our minds over time, and I don't know if this is going to be weeks, months, or decades, that chatter will quiet down, get shorter in duration and may just go away altogether. Hmm. If ever there was a purpose to our lives, to me, this is as good of any. I believe everything on planet earth is being put here to evolve, to try to strive to become something better. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Whether you're a single cell organism from... A gazillion millennia ago, mm-hmm. or you're uh, a tree trying to create a better, stronger root system and drop its seeds so its offspring can grow up even stronger than it. Or you're a ferret or a human being. We're all trying to grow into, evolve into being something greater. Mm-hmm. To me, that takes two aspects. Physically, your body needs to evolve. That's why this exercise thing is so fascinating and amazing. It's not just about who can run faster, it's about us as a race trying to become more formidable. If cheetahs could have a training program and all of a sudden they could run 70 miles an hour instead of 60 miles an hour, holy smokes. Mm-hmm. That's pretty damn cool. You don't have to wait for the, the, the centuries for these to evolve. And you could see what we see as humans. We're actually evolving faster than anybody else. This is incredible. But it's not just about our bodies evolving bigger, stronger, faster. It's about our minds evolving, which we have not done a very good job of. In fact, we might be, you know, there's evolution can evolve for the better or for the worse. Mm -hmm. And um, there is an underpinning movement in terms of, you know, the, you know, like our tolls type stuff of a new earth and Mm -hmm. um, an evolution of consciousness that is taking a foot. But I would argue that, you know, our more indigenous cultures were probably farther along than our modern day society is in terms of understanding this component of maximizing our potential as human
1: beings. That was amazing. There are so many uh, moments of, of epiphany there and what you were, were speaking on one it's funny, you're talking about the evolution. And one thing that I really, I was thinking about this literally two days ago uh, in the shower and-
2: Shower thoughts are the best. The, Showers and cars. Yeah.
1: The best. And, yep. the best. and <laughs> my father said this to me when I was quite young, about 14 years old. And I don't know why he said it at the time. And I I think he probably knew that I had the type of skin to to internalize this properly. But he told me, you know what, son- at the end of the day, if you're not better than me, you're a waste of life. Like, your purpose here is to be better than me. And I could see how a lot of people would take that the wrong way. And I'm not saying that's appropriate to say to your child. I'm just saying the way that I internalized that um, was, quite, was quite constructive for me. Um, and it really did kind of morph into my understanding. is like, yes, I've been given more opportunity than my father. I've been given more knowledge, more pretty much everything that you can you can think of in terms of resources i've been given more than my father so i should be taking that opportunity and capitalizing on those things um but like you said like you see the other side of it when i read some of these books uh on religion and uh philosophy and stoicism or whatever type of endeavor you want to to get into that involves the mind and psychology I do think we are a lot further behind in terms of, of what we are actually displaying in terms of psychological evolution. It's, it's funny. Cause there's, I had an individual on my podcast, uh, Abdullah and um, you know, something that stuck out to me, there's just something that hit uh, in a podcast that he had done. He was talking about one of the endurance, like one of the endurance races he is doing. these things are like 15 days long. They're crazy and they're like 22 hours on the bike, two hours sleeping type thing. Um, and he just said, why would I even entertain this battle of keep going? Keep like, I'm not even having that conversation anymore. Like, I'm not even going to like, why would I engage with that? That's a, that's a losing battle every time. I'm not going to engage with that. Like, and when I think about a lot of the things that make this guy so great, um, a lot of it is his ability to like learn through trial and error, but actually apply those psychological aspects because me and you both know whatever the sport is that we're talking about, whether it's ecological psychology, cognitive psychology, intrinsic motivation, drive, whatever you want to, whatever you want to put on it. Um, how important is that the mental game, right? Everyone says how, how, how much value do you put on the mental game, whatever it is, the sport doesn't matter the percentage. How much of your efforts do you spend on that? You ask everyone at most ten percent at most ten percent. um your ability to handle your emotions in everyday life if you're if you don't have the ability to to handle you know your water heater breaking and having to spend your whole day that you're planning on doing that if you don't have the emotional stability and tools to deal with that, what thinks what what makes you think that you're going to be able to handle that when your opponent is trash talking or your opponent is you know playing with you and pacing or whatever it is um all these psychological aspects make up such a huge factor and we're, we're now starting to understand the impacts on physiology like you're talking about we we know the environment like whether it's uh, you know whoever you want to go back to Hans seely the, the environment general adaptation theory syndrome we know that the stimuli that's placed on the cell is vital and that the stimuli that we're putting on ourselves all the time, I used to talk about this guy, Paul check all the time. Some people are familiar with him. People think he's crazy, whatever. That's fine. I am more than happy learning from people, regardless of all their views, right? If they have something to offer, they have something to offer. And one thing that he always talked about is how much time do these athletes actually spend working in all their time is spent expelling energy driving energy, driving energy into the ground, just depleting themselves? How much time do they actually spend putting energy back into their body? Most people, if they do it at all, it's in, in the form of food. You know, that's about it. Um, how much time do you spend sitting there? there? There's many different ways you can work on your psychology, but how much time do you spend putting energy back into your psyche? Um, so on game day, when you show up, you know, you can really dig into the well. Um, there's so many aspects of this. Like I would love to have a podcast of just on psychology, because I think people are missing the bigger key of like, they they're looking at like you, you really laid it out well. There's like, because a lot of people think psychology, the only uses it, it, the use for it is in game day performance, right? Like, Oh, we're going to work to, we're going to work harder on game day. We're going to, you know, the whole, um, Central governor theory, Noakes, all this stuff, right? Like, endure. I think that's only the tip of the iceberg. If we're talking about psychology, because we know, like, whether it's muscle tone, like I was talking about with someone recently on the podcast, muscle tone. What affects muscle tone? The nervous system, right? What's going on? What's what's controlling that nervous system? Well, there's plenty of things. There's the stress that's been placed on it. There's the current thoughts, experiments, the, the, the experience, the environment. Can we optimize that in any way through our thoughts, feelings, emotions, controlling all those things? Because not only just that one factor, but just adaptation in general, if our resources are being spent on fighting off invaders, fighting off these external threats, how much resources are you spending at rebuilding the body at physiologically gaining, right? at recovering actual recovery. Um, and I think we all know that you want to go look at seer programs, how much weight these guys lose in the amount of three days. Um, it's not like a coincidence. It's not because they're, you know, it's not just cause they're water fasting or whatever it is. It's the massive amount of stress that they're under. Do you think anyone's going in a, in an anabolic state during one of those, um, programs? No, they're not same with selection. No, they're not. And it's, I mean, there's other physical factors on top of that, but stress in itself, I think people, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of everything you're saying So what I'm trying to say. It's like, I don't, I don't hear like in listening to you talk and other podcasts. I'm like, this guy is really on to what people should be onto. It's like, we, we did spend a lot of time talking about the training and all these different things they are super important. And yes, they, they. They are uh, super vital, but I think the psychology is the backbone. When I have someone walk into me saying they want to walk into the lab saying they want to do something, whether UFC or whatever, I want to run this sub three, sub whatever. I'm not making my like in my head, their physiology and what they do is rarely like kind of the limiter to me. It's like all the little interactions that are going on you know, what are they saying about having to do the test or if they have to do this thing, all those little interactions I'm having with them. That's to me, what I'm picking up is whether or not they really have the capability to do this thing. The physiology, a lot of the times is rarely going to be, you know, the limit, depending what we're talking about is going to be the limiting factor. But if you're in the space, I think there's always so much for people to be gained psychologically, so much, so much. Um. Yeah, I, I. I think. I think wh- where are you kind of, because you know I've came to this from several different aspects. Um, I first came to it through like you know different things I read in the Ru- Russian literature. Um, training diff different wrestlers with different psychological profiles differently, and finding that it had a huge physiological benefit and also a competitive benefit. Um, then I later ran into. Um, which kind of shot off the Eric Braverman test, right? Which is kind of a proxy for neurological profile, which Poliquin used in his model, which Christian Thibodeau kind of put forth in his kind of expanded model. He doesn't really teach it much anymore because people have bashed it so much, unfortunately, but I thought it was a great model. That is kind of looking at the athlete, like what are their psychological traits? There seems to be some kind of underlying whispers of, what this athlete is going to respond best to, based on their psychological profile. Um, then it kind of moved off into some of the other, you know, cognitive psychology, just processing information and how the environment kind of shifts how you process information. Then polyvagal theory, all these different. Sort of, where where are you kind of interested in with this now? Are you more so um, trying to hone in like on specific like cognitive behavioral therapy, hypnosis, different things to kind of manipulate? the subconscious, what, what are, what are some of your like really big areas that you're really kind of hone in on with this?
2: To me, the biggest, so there is probably an infinite sized bag full of varying tips, tricks, and tools that you could use to bring these, these things to light and um, improve them. Yeah. But they all to me fall into this framework that it starts with awareness Mm -hmm. without awareness there's not a whole lot we're going to do so whether that's trying to you know whether you're an alcoholic and you're Mm -hmm. trying to whether you reckon until you recognize that you have you're an alcoholic yeah there's not a whole lot that anyone's going to do for you no matter how much they care no matter what sort of interventions are in place no matter what tips tricks and tools are used you have Mm -hmm. to recognize you have to be aware of what's happening. For me, the biggest thing that we need to do, and this is a three, the framework of this is a three pronged The first one, awareness. The most important aspect is, are you aware that you have a voice in your head? Are you aware that you're trying to set up your life so that that voice doesn't say anything negative? Because when that voice says something negative, it hits your shit, and when it hits your shit, it causes you to feel bad. Can you become aware of that? And maybe in hindsight, maybe thinking, imagination. But what we'd really like for that to happen is when that it really happens. When someone says, when your water heater breaks, as you just said, it really gets down to. I love what you're saying because. It it comes down to exactly the words. You said the words that I'm using now. It's how much can you handle? Mm -hmm. This is the deal. Can you recognize, can you become aware of when things are popping up that you can't handle? So you can handle when um, someone cuts you off in traffic. You can handle that. You can handle when you run into three red lights in a row. You can handle that because you're a more evolved being than some other people that can't handle that. Someone cuts someone else off in traffic and they lose their mind. Someone else has three red lights in a row and their head starts swirling. You can handle your water heater busting and waking up and you having to spend the next day and a half in your basement up to your knees in water. You can handle that. Other people, that would send them off. So can you recognize when something is sending you off? And what we have to do is start with the bite-sized stuff, the little things. Like you wake up and you're out of coffee. You didn't realize it, but you're going to have to go in the morning without coffee. Mm-hmm. That might send some people off. That might hit them. That might like put send them into a victim mindset, like that mm-hmm. small little nothing. So when you feel yourself slipping into that victim or pessimistic mindset, or even when you're going like, no, it's okay. We start tricking yourself to be an optimist. Those three things are really low levels of mindset. The lowest being victim. The next above that is a pessimist. The next above that is an optimist. Everyone thinks like, be optimistic. That's not a very elevated state. You're just yeah. tricking yourself. You're, yeah. you're, ref- you're, you're basically, you're trying to reframe reality. Yeah. Like what we're trying to do is be a realist. A realist is a very elevated state of consciousness, which is the water heater broke. Okay, water heaters go every 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. This is gonna happen. Today's the day. Yeah. Can I handle this with patience, with humility, with calmness, with courage? That's, the cha- that's our daily challenge. That's the work of, for us as a human being. Can we be aware of that? Then the next thing is what we just talked about is intention, awareness, intention. Your will as a human being is greater than almost anything else there is. Your will. When you set your mind to something, single pointed intention, no one can break you from that. No one. No one can take you away from that. The problem is we don't operate with intention. Certainly not single pointed intention. We go, yeah, it would be nice to be in shape. Yeah, it would be nice to earn six figures. Yes, it would be nice to have a really loving, calm house. Yes, it would be nice to have a morning routine where I journal and meditate and do the sauna. Yes, it would be nice. But that's not intention. Mm-hmm. That's wishing, wanting, and throwing crap against the wall and seeing what sticks. Mm-hmm. When you have intention, meaning like, I am going to do this, by the way, when it's inside your control which you internally, as you said, everyone's looking externally, right? Mm -hmm. External. What out there can I fix? No one's turning it internal. What can I fix inside? The challenge is we need to be intentional with growing our character. Mm -hmm. Full stop. That's it. So awareness. When is our character being hit? Cool. When it's being hit, that's the time. Now you're doing the reps Now you're doing the sets. Now you're actually doing the work. Everything up before that was just you walking around the gym. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: You're not making any changes. Until something hits you, like the water cooler, you haven't started to grow yet today. Now when that hits, now not only are you a realist where you go, okay, here it is. This was going to happen at some point in my life. Today's that day. Now it's intention. Now that it's here, I'm going to bring calmness, courage, humility, patience, acceptance to this moment. And then you level up even more to where you have bring a warrior mindset to that. And you go, yes, thank God this happened because this is my chance to evolve. The true warrior wanders the earth looking for a rival, a a worthy foe. Mm -hmm. They don't want to just dominate the local dojo there's no challenge or growth in that. They want to travel the entire earth looking for somebody that is worthy, that will challenge them because they know that the best version of them is on the other side of that, win, lose, or draw. It's not about if you don't make it through the day without losing your mind for the water cooler. It's, not, it's okay if you get frustrated. It's okay if you have the negative thoughts. As long as you are present and that's, I don't even like to use that word because it's so overused. Mm-hmm. As long as you are aware in the moment of what's happening and if it becomes too much, it's too much. Okay. You put too much weight on the bar and you couldn't pick up the bar. Yeah. That's not a lost day at the gym. So it's just a matter of like, this was too much. Now I'm going to work on the other bite-sized pieces and continue to grow. And I'm going to do that every single day. It's not what we talk about, it's what we tolerate. I can't hear what you're saying because your actions speak so loudly. So it's not about your awareness or your intentions. Like I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna get fit. I'm gonna do a morning routine. I'm gonna make a a really peaceful, loving home. Go do it, Mm -hmm. go and do that thing. And when you go and do that thing, now we're stacking the bricks. Now we're building the wall. Now we have the aggregation of marginal gains. You don't have to stack three or four bricks in a day. In fact, you don't have to stack a full brick in one day. You just have to continually be working on the wall. At all times, have ultimate awareness that this is my job in life to grow from an emotional, from a mental, and from a conscious standpoint. And then from there, what will happen is you will be able to handle more. As you practice this, you can handle more and more. Well, if you can handle more and more, you become more and more of an asset to your family, your friends, and the human race. You are now evolving as a human being because you can handle more. you are now becoming unrattleable or at least not as rattleable as before
1: yeah that's i I love that man that It's funny like. Kind of the last thing I'll say on that is like one thing you're talking about is when you're when you're completely aware, you know the task is the task. That's all there is. It's just a task. And one thing I've noticed with you know one of the, one of the best ways that encompasses like we're talking about building psychological resilience and and also tools to, to aid in whatever it is, just character building in in itself, right? Like a lot of people looked at stoicism and these different places to try and encompass everything. One of the best outlets I've found for that in my life was traditional climbing. So climbing on gear, Hmm. right? Rock climbing on gear. And the reason why is because you're making the decisions and where you're going to place gear to protect yourself. You can put a piece in here, you can put a piece in there. And it's all going to depend on how the rock is kind of shaped and how well that gear can kind of get slotted in and how well you can actually hold your position and try and place this piece, a camming device or a nut or whatever it is you're trying to place for protection in the rock securely clip your rope into it and continue climbing up. The problem with that is it's never perfect. Hmm. It's never perfect. Love you that. rarely yeah. have a You rarely have a, a climb where it's like, oh man, the clip, the, the The gear was just bomber on that one. I felt so psychologically safe. It's never that way. And it's up to you. You're going to make a decision and you can climb above that and you can worry about, oh, that piece wasn't good enough, this and that. And like, oh my goodness, there's no gear ahead of me. Like you, you you just have what's in front of you. You can sit there and psych yourself out, waste your energy trying to hold on and kind of go back and forth. And what did I do? Why did I do that? Or you can just climb and say, what are my options? What do I have here? And the ability for someone's, like you always see this with the different individuals. Some people that can r- climb super hard on sport, right? Which is you're clipping the quick draw. It's fairly safe, right? Or, or they're getting top roped. But whenever they get on gear, they have no ability to climb. They just have no ability to deal with all those factors. And what I notice is the individuals that are always best on gear were like the most grounded in touch, aware individuals mm. I've always ever met. They're just like they're, super they're, cool. They're they're so like solid. Like you just talk to the person and you instantly feel less stressed. Mm. Like they're so grounded because it is what it is. It's they're aware, they're attentive, they're hearing what you're saying. Um, and it's just it's just a great way to cultivate some of those skills. And obviously, I'm not saying everyone go out there and climb on gear cause there's a process to it, but it was just a unique, cause of all the things I've done that really highlighted kind of the encapsulating idea of all these different things we're trying to build into one of like, you know, managing emotion, managing the decisions that we make uh managing our, our focus and where we're going to attend to. Um But yeah, man, this is, this is a great discussion. I hope like I like sometimes the like, people will probably listen to the first part and wonder like, you know, how does this have anything to do with the first part? And sometimes I wonder like, you know.
2: <laughs> we, do it, we can I, do it as part, part one and part two. Yes, two yes, things. yes. Yeah.
1: So I really, really appreciate the time and the attention that you took today and and coming on the podcast and, and, and uh, you know, getting back to me. I really, really appreciate all of it.
0: Thank you again to Matthew. The show is called The Oxidative Potential Podcast. Go check it out if this conversation sparked interest in you. Thank you to you, as always, for listening to the show. Ben and I will be back with another episode of Chasing Excellence next week.